Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Palo Alto. With me is R.A. Briggs, Professor of Philosophy at Stanford University, and they are here to discuss gender. R.A. Briggs, welcome back to Elucidations. Uh, thanks, it's great to be back. So you might think that gender is like pretty straightforward. You might think that, like, what's the big mystery here? I mean, just to take my own example, I was taught by my parents growing up that there were two genders, man and woman or boy and girl, and that, you know, boys have this kind of body and girls have that kind of body. And that's how you tell who falls into what. These days, it seems like some people are arguing there's more to the story than just that. What else is there? Yeah, so there's quite a lot and there's a lot in your question that I want to sort of pull apart. So one thing you said is that you were taught that boys have one kind of physiology and girls have another kind of physiology. And a philosophical distinction that is common in feminist philosophy and, and pretty old is between sex on the one hand, which is the physiology, and gender on the other hand, which is the social role. So when you classify people as men and women or boys and girls sort of in your day-to-day -day life, uh, you're often looking at cues other than the physiological cues you got told are associated with being male or female. So being male or female is sort of usually the, the words people use for uh, the sex categories. So that has to do with what your reproductive biology is like. And being a man or, the, or a woman is sort of what people use for the gender categories, which have to do with uh, what your social role is like. And so sex and gender are sort of different because they play, first of all, different explanatory roles. So if I want to know why somebody got pregnant, appealing to their sex characteristics is a good explanation. If I want to know why somebody got discriminated against at their job, their sex characteristics might not be like the first thing to point to. So there, there's uh, the distinction between sex on the one hand and gender on the other hand. And I should add that like quite a lot gets lumped into the gender category that maybe could be pulled apart farther. So like later in this interview, I'm going to be talking about work with my colleague B.R. George, and B.R. George also has like interesting discussions of sort of different things that can go under the gender category. So we've got the sex-gender distinction. Also, you mentioned the idea that there are only two gender categories, boys and girls, men and women. And these days there are people who sort of consider themselves neither or consider themselves to be fluidly moving between those gender categories. And certainly there are people... So I think another uh, thing about the way people commonly think about gender is that you start off with one and you get put in that category when you're a baby and then you stay in it your whole life. And there are lots of people who sort of move between gender categories. So those are some complications to the picture that you gave me. Okay, good. So sex, according to this terminology, is yeah. instead of biological features, having something roughly to do with a person's reproductive capacities. And gender is something like 
the phrase that sometimes pops up is the social meaning of sex, or it's like the social significance, or in any event, it's some set of social roles. Yeah. Like the expectation that if you're this gender, then you can go on maternity leave. And if you're that gender, you can use this bathroom and things like that. Yeah, so actually it gets used, uh, and here again I'm like appealing to VR George's stuff a lot, it gets used for a bunch of different things. So there's the categories themselves, so man and woman, which are social categories, and those are genders. And I'll be talking more about those in a bit. There's also expectations based on which category somebody is a member of. So if you have somebody who's a, ma- a member of the sort of boy social category, you might expect them to wear khaki colors and uh, play with guns when they're a child which is kind of disturbing. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move along. Uh, so the, yeah, there's the categories, there's the expectations based on the categories. And there's also people's sort of internal feelings about the categories. So you might think, look, I should be a member. I am a member of one category rather than the other, or like, I don't care which category I'm a member of, or I feel like I'm a member of both. So those are all sometimes referred to as gender and people like to conflate them. Okay, right. So one thing you see happen often in kind of everyday conversation is, I don't know if we exactly conflate sex and gender, but we sort of assume that they're interchangeable or, you know, sometimes we'll invoke maleness as an explanation for something and sometimes we'll invoke manhood as an explanation for something. But I think in the popular imagination, they're often assumed to be kind of interchangeable. And what we've just done is we've pulled them apart, but they're still related somehow, aren't they? So what's the relation? Yeah. So, I mean, one obvious relation is that they tend to co-vary. Like, people with male physical characteristics tend to be men, and people with sort of stereotypically female sex characteristics tend to be women. And uh, I don't I don't want to assume that everybody has one or the other, or that there's sort of no gray areas there, but there are sort of stereotypical clusters of characteristics that are associated with sex, and they tend to co-vary with gender, but I think it's more than that. So you said, uh, you quoted the slogan, gender is the social meaning of sex. And I think that sex categories explain why gender categories count as gender categories rather than something else. So there are a lot of social categories that don't count as genders. So being a night bachelor, for instance, it's a social role. It influences how people see you, how people treat you, but it's not a gender. Whereas being a woman is a gender, being sort of non-binary is a gender, uh, being a man is a gender. So genders are social categories that have like something to do with how we interpret sex or how we understand sex characteristics and they somehow get their significance from sex characteristics. One thing that's interesting about some of these gender categories you mentioned is it's not always clear that each of those corresponds to a sex in the way that maybe some of the traditional gender categories we discussed might be thought to. No, absolutely. So genders have something to do with sex, but some of them are like a little bit far from sex. And I think that you're picking up correctly on that. So to be a gender, you have to somehow be traceable back to biological sex. So being a man is somehow associated with a set of biological sex characteristics. Being a woman is associated with a different set of biological sex characteristics. Being non-binary is connected to being a man or a woman. To be non-binary is to not fall into either of those categories comfortably. So it's traceable back to man and woman, and man and woman are traceable back to the biology. So ultimately, like, there's a, a line that goes from non-binary to biology. But it's a complicated set of connections. 
So what about if you're a trans man or a trans woman? That is to say, what if you were assigned the sex female at birth and then in adulthood you decided that actually really you're a man, so you're going to transition and thenceforth you know, be referred to using male pronouns and publicly identify as a man? What's your connection to male physiology in that case? Right. So your main connection is via the man-gender category. So you, you join this social category and you opt in to be classified as a man by the people around you. That's what you want. And, you know, hopefully if you successfully socially transition, what you get, I think what you ought to get. So you are connected to the man category. The man category is connected to biological features associated with maleness. You may or may not end up with those biological features or some of those biological features. So I certainly don't think that to be a trans man, you have to end up with a penis, for instance. So actually, the one, I think, common misconception about how transitioning works is that there is a magic operation, which probably consists in the installation or removal of a penis and makes you biologically... Uh, as much like members of the sex associated with the gender you want to join as possible. And really, transition is much more complicated than that. So it involves a lot of social changes, like getting the markers on your IDs uh, changed, for instance, and asking for, you know, male name, male pronouns. It can involve various medical changes, which uh, generally, I think, are the business of the person transitioning and not the business of others, although... You know, lots of people have been kind enough to share information about how this medical stuff works. So people might take hormones, they might get various surgeries, um, they might not, they might not do any of those things. It really depends on the individual. But the main link, I think, is between the person and the gender category, and then from the gender to the sex. Okay, so with some of these new developments, some authors have argued that Acknowledging a person's gender is a consensual act in the sense that they should have definitive say over how other people gender them. Maybe you could walk us through like why that is. Right. So Kate Bornstein is the earliest example of somebody I know of who uses the phrase consensual gender. So she says uh, gender should be safe, sane and consensual. And what she means by that is that people should get to opt-in or opt-out of gender categories based on what they want rather than what the people around them project onto them. So the idea is not necessarily that you should have some kind of libertarian free will. You don't have any reason to choose one rather than the other. Maybe you're, you have your reasons and you're sort of stuck with them. But given your reasons, you should be able to tell others, uh, yes, I'm a woman. No, I'm not a woman. Yes, I'm a man. No, I'm not a man. And that's basically because, uh, <laughs> why is that? It's because it, uh, it results in less net misery, I think. Also, it's a sort of personal aspect of a human being that they should get to control. Oh, actually, I should talk about Julia Serrano. So Serrano has this really useful concept of gender entitlement, where she notes that Rather than being internal to a person, a lot of gender is projected onto them by others. So again, gender means different things in different settings. So there's how you feel about the social categories. And then there's how people treat you with respect to the social categories. 
And you can make the mistake of thinking that people's treatment of you with respect to the social categories is some sort of natural part of you that's internal to you. So if you have somebody in, say, a skirt suit walking down the street, you might think, oh, she's a woman and her womanness emanates from her being. But in fact, what you're doing is you're projecting a bunch of woman expectations onto her. And perhaps you get closer and you see, ah, the person's skirt suit has sort of stereotypically male characteristics. Maybe he's a cross-dressing man. You project another set of, uh, of expectations onto him. And to work out what the right set of expectations is to project onto this person, you might think the right thing to do is to ask them what expectations they'd like projected onto them rather than just making assumptions. So let's say I'm trying to figure out what gender I am. You mentioned earlier that well, it's not just simply a matter of what my physiological reproductive capacities are because people can transition. So that's enough to show that those two things aren't like strictly aligned. But you also mentioned that it isn't just sort of willy-nilly random. Like I can just randomly choose. Oh, if I feel like being a man, let's decide to be a man. If I feel like being a woman, let's opt to be a woman. Like the way you choose a career or something. It seems like it's not just willy-nilly. I can choose whatever and it doesn't really matter. So what is it that determines whether I'm a man or a woman, if not my biological reproductive capacities? So I guess I've committed myself in writing to an official story about this. Uh, And the official story is what determines whether you're a man or a woman is sort of whether it's right to place you in the man category, given sort of fixed facts about what that category is like, or whether it's right to place you in the woman category given fixed facts about what that category is like. And this idea comes from Issa Diaz-Leon, who sort of notes that man and woman can be sort of normatively loaded categories. And the criteria for putting somebody in one category rather than the other can be normative. So that that's sort of what determines whether you're a man or a woman. Now, you might have some further questions like, well, what are the relevant norms? So this is not a matter on which I'm sort of officially committed in writing. You know, unofficially, I think the relevant norms are give people what suits them or what would benefit them and fulfill them the most. And the way to find out what would fulfill you the most is to do some introspection and experimenting. And to say that whether somebody counts as a man or a woman is a normative matter is to say that there's such a thing as like people being correctly classed as men versus incorrectly classed as men. Yes. And then maybe the idea is like, well, we could write a whole further paper going into detail about how do we correctly class people? But for now, all we need to do is assume that there is such a thing as a gender being a good fit in some sense or other for a person. And we can just sort of assume that there's some story to be told about that. That's right. And also, uh, Another important part of this is that usually if you want to know what is a good fit for a person, a good way to find out is by asking them. That doesn't tell you what's a good fit for you, but it tells you what's a good fit for others at least. Yeah. So one worry some people have about decoupling gender from sex like at all is that it's advocating some sort of skepticism about biology or it's like denying the basic findings of science in this regard. Do you think that that's a legitimate worry to have? Not really, no. So... I think that you can believe in 
sex and you can sort of defer to biologists about sort of how sex characteristics work but still think that there's a distinct set of social categories for gender. So actually this kind of marks an interesting difference between gender and race where the science on race all suggests that there are not really interesting biological categories where races are. Whereas there probably are interesting biological categories roughly in in the vicinity of gender. But in both cases, you can have social categories that are interesting, independent of the biological reality. Okay, so we've been talking about how a really important part of having a gender is occupying a certain social role. What if we just sort of went all out with that approach and defined the woman gender as being socially subordinated on the basis of your presumed reproductive capacities and we define the man gender as being systematically privileged on the basis of your being presumed to have the male's biological role in reproduction. Something like that, where we sort of like build in people projecting from their assumptions about your physiology into a certain social role of either being subordinated or being privileged. What if we like built that into the notion of gender? So this is Sally Haslinger's uh, pair of definitions of woman and man. And I'm going to tell you what I like about these definitions before I tell you what I don't like about these definitions. So a good thing about these definitions is that they go a long way toward capturing how women can be really different from each other and still have a lot in common. So if you try to define genders based on sort of stereotypical characteristics, you'd always find for any stereotype you could give some woman who was a woman without fulfilling the stereotype. And similarly, for any stereotype of men you could give, you could find a man who didn't fulfill the stereotype but was still completely a man. So Haslinger gets around that by saying, look, women don't have any sort of stereotypic characteristics in common. What they have is perceived biology, not not necessarily even actual biology, but perceived biology, plus sort of being oppressed based on that biology. So it's kind of nice because, you know, first it gives you something that people can have in common without sharing a stereotype and maybe without sharing like a mechanism of oppression. So even if white women and black women are oppressed in really different ways, uh, they're both oppressed. And second, these definitions give you a tool that's designed to combat sexist oppression. So... One way to get feminism up and running as an appealing project is to say that to be a woman is to be oppressed in certain ways. So this makes it sort of urgent to have an anti-oppression project that fights on behalf of the rights of women. So those are sort of two good things about Haslinger's definition. But I think there are sort of a couple of things that don't work about this definition, even though it's sort of an advance on the previous state of the art. So I, I want to stress that this is an accomplishment and the fact that it's not perfect doesn't mean that it's useless. But uh, one problem is that it just seems to misclassify a lot of people. So take non-passing binary trans people. They are not presumed to have characteristics that are evidence of the biological role that goes with their correct gender. So if you've got a trans woman who doesn't pass and is in a transphobic society, people might misclassify her as a man systematically. And that doesn't make her a man. That doesn't make it correct for them to classify her as a man. So in cases like that, Haslinger's 
definitions of woman and man are just going to misclassify people. So they get the extension wrong. A second problem is that uh, if you build oppression into the definition of woman, uh, you might make it sort of mysterious why anybody should want to belong to that category. And if you build privilege into, into the category of man, you make it make, might make it very suspicious that anybody should want to belong to that category who wasn't assigned to it. Oh, I see. So it's suspicious because maybe transitioning to being a man might in this context look like kind of a power grab or an attempt to like move up in the social hierarchy. Yeah, that's a thing that I have heard people say that I think is unfair. Okay, so we've discussed a whole bunch of different genders that people can be. And we've noted that this kind of like social positioning definition does a great job of not making any like reductive assumptions about what it is to be a woman or a man, where you take one stereotypic trait and then try to cram every other woman or man into that cookie cutter mold. It does a great job of that, but one potential downside to this approach is that some people end up getting miscategorized. So a trans woman who's in a community where she's recognized by other people to be a trans woman rather than a cis woman and maybe is getting systematically misgendered, we shouldn't say that somebody in that situation is a man in virtue of the way that they're being socially positioned. That's That's a bad prediction. Yes. (laughs) How do you propose that we get that part of the story right while also keeping as many of the virtues of the social positioning definition as we can. So I think that we can keep something like Hasslanger's definition as a sort of maybe slightly mythic story about how genders might have arisen in the first place. So you can think of what in the paper that we're talking about my co-author and I call primordial genders as being social roles that are assigned just completely based on sex. Now, maybe there have been such roles in the past, maybe there haven't been, but in some way this is a useful approximation to the way the world works. Maybe what we can say is that even if it didn't technically work exactly this way always, we're now in a situation in which in many cases we behave as though it always worked that way. Yeah, that's a helpful way of thinking of it. So you have primordial genders, which are social categories, but then social categories can persist and like keep on existing, even if the rules governing them change. So this is true of a lot of social categories. So you can introduce, say, the Stanford University Anime Club for the appreciation of anime. And your bylaws might originally sort of say that uh, we can only watch Utna Tenju Revolutionary Girl. And then you can have appreciators of other forms of anime come in and say, no, we're going to change the bylaws and make them more flexible. And maybe we're going to be the anime and comics club even. But the club can persist through all these changes and rules because it's sort of continuous. Like it's got overlap in members. It's got overlap in social role. It's got sort of gradual change of rules. And genders can be like that. So if a social category sort of starts out based on sex and then changes gradually, then it can remain a gender. It almost seems like an evolutionary model of the social role of gender. Maybe it started off being straightforwardly, you know, you fall into this biological category, you fall into that one. Then very slowly over time, these tiny little incremental changes over a huge population, maybe 
made it change into something a little bit different where the membership conditions end up changing? I think that's not a bad analogy. So maybe species work like this too, where the characteristics of a species can drift around without destroying the species. So what would this account say about the example we just had earlier of a trans man in a uh, maybe transphobic community who isn't passing as a cis man? Right. So this person isn't excluded sort of by the definition of the category man from counting as a man anymore. A funny thing about our account is that it doesn't yet say. So just the thing that I told you about sort of primordial and historical genders doesn't tell you who counts as a man. So it doesn't tell you whether this person counts as a man. It doesn't tell you whether a cis man counts as a man either. So we've got to say more. And this is where the normative stuff that I was talking about earlier comes in. So I said, look, who counts as a man or a woman is who ought to be counted if you hold fixed features of the categories, but sort of make society otherwise more just. So, you know, I think that a trans man who who lives in a transphobic society and doesn't pass ought to be counted. And so I think that person is therefore a man because they ought to count as a man. So that's what the distinction between primordial and historical gender gets us. It gets us that you can have the same category we had before, but the conditions for membership in it can change slightly over time. And then the second part of the story, what you were calling the normative part of the story, tells us the way you figure out if somebody is a man is whether they should count as a man. And that's maybe going to have something to do with what gender is the best fit for them, or that's maybe a story we're going to tell down the road. Yeah, so both of those things. Also, I should introduce maybe one distinction that I wasn't super clear on. Yeah. Which is, there's a difference between conditions for actually counting as a man or a woman and conditions for being counted as a man or a woman by the people around you, and those can come apart. So you can have a woman who is mistaken for a man by everybody around her. And so I, I definitely want to say, look, the conditions for being classified as a man or a woman can change over time. Can the conditions for actually counting as a man or a woman change over time? Probably. Probably they can as well. And the only purpose of drawing a distinction between actually counting as having a particular gender and being thought by other people to count as a particular gender is to allow for the possibility that other people might get my gender wrong. Right. That's the point of that distinction. So you've written about this fun thought experiment involving two different planets that are very similar to our own planet in which people's reproductive capacities and the social roles they ended up having played out in kind of different ways. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that thought experiment. Yes. And before I do, I should give my co-author B.R. George credit for a lot of the hilarity here. Uh, (laughs) So our thought experiment is meant to sort of illustrate why Haslanger's definition of man and woman won't work and why sort of nothing quite similar to it will work in getting uh, the classification of people right. So we imagine sort of two science fictional planets. One, Patriarcha, is sort of like an exaggerated, I don't know, Western liberal democracy with the sexism that still exists in Western liberal democracies. So there are two gender roles, blokes and sheilas. And while these have formal equality under the law, they're sort of treated very differently and they're stereotyped very differently. So people get to be a bloke by having sort of stereotypically male physiological features. 
that's how you get into the bloat category. And once you're in the bloat category, you are expected to not cry much. You're expected to be the primary breadwinner for your family. You're expected to sort of be ready to punch people who need punching. If you're a Sheila, on the other hand, so you get into the category of Sheila by having stereotypically female physiology. And once you're in there, you're expected to be sweet and sensitive, to take care of other people's feelings, to take primary responsibility for raising children, to generally be decorative. So that's patriarcha. We also have the planet of Amazonia, which is somewhat different. So it too is a liberal democracy with formal equality of genders and sexes, I guess, both under the law. But it's got somewhat different gender roles. So on Amazonia are girls, which you can't see in this radio podcast, but that's spelled with three R's, like Riot Girl. (laughs) And boys, which you also can't see on this podcast, but it's spelled uh, B-O-I-S. And girls are expected to be the primary breadwinners for their family. They're expected to be able to punch whoever needs punching. They're expected to be stoical and not show much emotion. You get into the girl category by having stereotypically female characteristics. So the stereotypes for the girl category are very much like the stereotypes for the bloke category on patriarcha, except that you get into the girl category by having a different set of reproductive features, the stereotypically female ones. And the boy category is sort of expected to be subordinated to uh, the girl category. Boys are supposed to sort of take care of others' feelings. They're supposed to be sweet and sensitive. They're supposed to be primary caregivers for the children. And so the expectations on the boys are much like expectations on Sheila's back on patriarcha. But uh, boys get into that category by having stereotypically male physiology. And of course, the sociobiologists of Amazonia have lots of rationales for why these gender roles are natural and spring from the essences of people. After all, girls are traditionally associated with the sex that uh, has to protect children. It is natural that they would be fierce and tough. Boys who have to compete hard to win the attention of a mate because girls have more reproductive investment, of course, are going to have to kowtow to the girls' whims, are going to have to show their value by being decorative and pretty and making a home. So sociobiologists of Amazonia say all these things. I don't know whether we should believe them probably only as much as we should believe the sociobiologists of patriarcha, but so they say. So those are the two planets, at least at the beginning of this thought experiment. As time goes on, Amazonia and patriarcha both liberalize a bit. Just a bit. So their gender stereotypes remain intact. Uh, The fact that one gender is sort of typically dominant over the other also remains intact. But they relax their rules for membership in the genders. They allow for transition. And we can imagine that they sort of don't have the resources for Medical transition, they have a hard time getting people hormones and surgery, but they allow for social transition. You can opt in or opt out to the bloke category, the Sheila category, the girl category, or the boy category. So as uh, opting in and opting out becomes allowed, uh, the demographic makeup of these categories shifts so that blokes, Sheilas, girls, and boys all become about sort of 50-50 balanced between people with stereotypical male characteristics and people with stereotypical female characteristics. So at the end of this process, the bloke category and the girl category are sort of identical with respect to their relationship to biology. 
half of blokes are sort of stereotypically male, half are stereotypically female with respect to physiology. They're identical with respect to stereotypes and expectations. And yet, it looks like blokes are men. The category of blokes started out as a category of men and kept being a category of men and didn't get destroyed by this liberalization. And the girls are not men because the, the category of girls started out as a category of not men. You might even think it started out as a category of women. Didn't get destroyed by this liberalization of who is allowed to enter and exit. And so didn't become a category of men. So you have these sort of two functionally indistinguishable social classes where one's a class of men and one isn't. So the stuff that they share in common can't be enough to determine whether you have a class of men or you have not a class of men. So the moral of this thought experiment then is that once both of these two respective planetary societies have undergone a social revolution, making gender into something fully consensual, the Sheilas and the boys should be indistinguishable from each other in terms of their social function. And they also are completely free to opt in or out of those roles, irrespective of what their biological makeup is. So being a Sheila should be the same thing as being a boy if having a gender were nothing more than occupying a certain set of social roles. So the upshot of this thought experiment is that we need more because we don't actually want to identify being a Sheila with being a boy. Mostly. <laughs> um, so I think uh, being a Sheila and being a boy can't consist in satisfying certain stereotypes, nor can they consist in having certain physiology, nor can they consist in sort of any mixture of stereotypes and physiology. Great. It has to be this funny relationship of being part of a cultural practice that started a long time ago and originally functioned according to one set of rules and now functions according to a set of different rules. It's got to be that sort of like historical conception. That's what's required to distinguish these two hypothetical genders. Right. And that's what's required in particular to be sort of a man or a woman. So we're... Uh the thought experiment is really about the category as man and woman, and we actually don't... <gasps> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but not about the category gender, for instance, and not about the category as uh, bloke and Sheila, except insofar as they relate to man and woman. Good, right. So not necessarily relevant to the to being bi-gender, to being genderqueer, or some of these other examples we discussed. Right. So the thought experiment doesn't really speak to those. It's just sort of a counterexample to accounts of man and woman that define them only in terms of reproductive biology and sort of social role right now without looking at the history. So why do you think it's important to have a theory of what men are, what women are, or what gender is in light of these social developments? Is it that having a an account of what it is to be these things can help us do a better job of being these things? Or what's the big picture motivation? So I think the big picture motivation is to have concepts that are well designed to fight sexism and transphobia. Hasslinger is sort of focused on the project of fighting sexism. And her central examples are examples of cis women who make up the majority of victims of sexism. So I think that's completely fair. Although if you don't happen to be a cis woman, uh, that's sort of no consolation to you. And uh, your interests matter too. 
So the nice thing about Haslinger's definitions is that they sort of let you see this common anti-oppression project that all women have. I think a limitation of the definitions is that they they don't show you sort of why men should also be part of this anti-oppression project, except for sort of disinterested reasons. I think that there there is also sexism that harms men, and this is one of the reasons that men should be invested in feminism. And they don't correctly capture the investment that uh, trans women have in an anti-sexism project and an anti-kind of trans misogyny project. So our definitions are sort of aimed at getting a, a better version of that project off the ground. I think they're also sort of aimed at rebutting people who think that sort of trans identities make no sense. It's false that trans identities make no sense. And we've got a sort of how possibly story. How could you have categories of man and woman such that binary trans people really belonged in the right one rather than the wrong one? And we give a story about that. And I think also uh, it's good to help people understand themselves. Like, what are these categories that make up a part of my identity? R.A. Briggs, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. (laughs) If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) 